Welcome to Creators by Moonlight. Real conversations with content creators. Sean Cermic is a YouTuber from Berks County, Pennsylvania. As an avid collector of antiques and collectibles, he combines his love for collecting with practical financial knowledge to help others steer clear of FOMO, pitfalls, and hype. In this episode, he talks about his love-hate relationship with YouTube, Timmy's, Kimmy's, and Poindexter's, and what most collectors are getting wrong. Collectors are born. They are not made. If you don't have the true collecting gene, chances are you're not a true born collector. You're just somebody passing through. My name is Sean Sarmick. I grew up in Boyertown, Pennsylvania, which is located roughly 25 minutes from King of Prussia and roughly 50 minutes from Philadelphia. It is a small suburb. It's a small town. I've lived there pretty much my whole life. I grew up in a upper middle class household. My parents have been married for 50 years. I would say that I had a fairly happy childhood, but I did encounter some childhood trauma that did potentially shape who I would become. In school, I was very active in a lot of things that were considered intellectual pursuits at the time. I was into a lot of expanding my horizons. I loved history, I loved finance, I loved classic literature, and I also liked learning about new and exciting things. I was always considered to be very curious. And at a young age, I considered myself a collector and I would seek out certain things in the collectible space. And my parents at the time would take me to a lot of different areas. For instance, I was lucky in that several times a month, I got to go to shopping malls like the King of Prussia Mall. I got to go to also, though, on the other end, flea markets, antique marts, places of that nature. So I saw a mix of demographics, a mix of different people. And I was able to interact with a plethora of individuals that were interested in the antiques and collectibles. And this pretty much takes me up to around the age of 12. My neighbor at the time, he owned a restaurant in Boyertown. It was a very popular restaurant. And I started bussing tables at the age of 13, Fridays and Saturday nights for like four hours a night. And that was my first job. And that's where I really got money to pay for this. It wasn't much, but it allowed me to get in the game at a young age. And that's what I credit as my work ethic too. It really helped my work ethic. My very first collectibles were baseball cards, points. My grandfather gave me a Carson City Morgan Silver Dollar. And I did grade that coin and still have it in my personal collection comic books, and then I got into video games. And I always considered the fact that video games could be collected. So right around the 80s was Nintendo was the hot problem. So I was really into Nintendo, but I was also into superheroes. I was into, of course, a lot of science fiction movies. And I was also interested in some very bizarre things at the time. Like in my teenage years, my very young teenage years, I was really getting into finance and history. And I was reading a lot of books that a typical 13 or 14-year-old wouldn't be reading. Matter of fact, it was around this time that I developed a love for classic literature. I read The Great Gatsby, Ethan Frome, books of that nature that were kind of taught in more high school than junior high school. And I gravitated towards those books. 
And almost all of them, I would discover this later, had a very dark theme, like Gatsby, Ethan Frome, Picture of Dorian Gray. And I really liked the stories that were put forth by those authors, because in my assessment, they had a hidden meaning. So I was really reading about all this stuff, and I discovered the antiques and collectibles trade. And I started interacting with individuals in that market. And I basically just asked them, I said, you know, I'm interested in really learning about this stuff. And they took me under their wing. And they started teaching me a lot of the so-called secrets, the tricks of the trade. What was very fascinating to me is I started to discover that a lot of the eloquent, hardcore, higher-end collectors, they not only knew all about antiques and collectibles, but they knew about finance, business, investing. And what was really appealing to me was the fact that they merged these two things into something that would later be known as collectible finance. Well, back in the 1980s and 1990s, collectible finance wasn't really a thing. You didn't have TikTok. You didn't have YouTube. You didn't have social media where people were stating, hey, I invest in Pokemon cards or I invest in comic books or vintage toys or video games or Nike Air sneakers. It wasn't like that. The trade was very, it was more decentralized. Because the internet wasn't really around yet, you had pockets of people in certain collecting markets that were spread all over pretty much the entire United States, the entire world. So people really didn't know if something was truly rare or uncommon because there was no real centralized location to go to find that information. So a lot of the collecting communities would learn from one another. And you had people that were really well-known in these collecting communities, even much like today. You look at comic books, if you look at rare coins, if you look at historical documents, traditional antiques, Pokemon cards, whatever the collecting category is, there are a lot of top-tier collectors that are well-known to everybody in those markets. Well, back during this time, there was a lot of information being put out by collectors, more so than high-profile investors, auction houses, and grading companies, because grading just became a thing in the mid-1980s. So it was around this time that I really got involved with the market. I started learning, and a lot of my mentors in the trade had no problem taking me under their wing because I was this curious kid that wanted to learn all this stuff. And one of the individuals that they introduced me to early on was a guy by the name of Harry Rink. And I was fascinated by what he was teaching, what he was writing about, as he wrote several books. And Harry Rinker, in my opinion, and I'm sure that he wouldn't get mad at me saying this because I've spoken to him many times, at least through email and the like. Harry Rinker was very kind of bearish against the antiques and collectibles trade from a financial perspective. And this was very appealing to me because my passions at this particular time were becoming to be finance literature, and antiques and collectibles. So one of the things that I did early on, I was listening to my mentors and they were teaching me how these markets work over the short term, over the long term, teaching me things like, hey, what's hot now may not be hot 10, 20, 30, 40 years from now. If you have something, you're ready to let it go, sell it in the market, take your profit, move on. If you want to build a collection, build a collection. If you're going to build a collection, Go after the higher end items that have true organic rarity. 
This is what I was taught to learn from a young age. So as I was growing up, learning about this now on my own, just with the support of my mentors, what happened was I set out to test a lot of these lessons that I learned in my early years. Now at this particular time, I was just coming out of high school, ready to go into college, and eBay was this big thing. I was at the forefront of eBay. Every weekend, pretty much every time I could, I would be at flea markets like two hours before they opened, trying to get the good stuff so that I could take it home, I could flip it on eBay and make a profit. But it was also at this time, I wanted to see if some of the stuff that Harry Rinker was teaching, some of the stuff that my mentors were telling me was true. So I wanted to test their theories on short-term and long-term investment in these markets. And I picked an excellent time to do it because eBay was just becoming a thing. People were flocking to the internet. We had things like Beanie Baby soaring in value, Pez dispensers, pre-Nintendo video games like Atari, ColecoVision, and television. All the people now that grew up with that stuff, their parents, who are baby boomers today, they collected Lionel toy trains, Hummel figurines, Schwinn bicycles, a lot of items. Western toy collectibles, play sets from Mark's toys from the 50s and 60s. Now we had a new generation coming in here that was going after stuff that was big in the 60s and 70s. And this was causing prices on that stuff to soar. And it was very interesting to see how a lot of these markets were working and ending up having a lot of people come into these markets who were discovering eBay for the very first time. Part of what I wanted to do was prove Harry Rinker wrong because I had thought that some of his theories were too bearish and a lot of these markets could have a lot of potential going forward. Well, as I got further and further into this, several years went by and I built a huge following on eBay. I was making a lot of money. I discovered the truth. These markets are always changing and evolving. And that had a pronounced effect on me where I kind of went back to the proverbial drawing board, worked with a lot of my mentors, and I said, okay, this is really fascinating. The average individual who even collects, who gets involved in these markets, does not understand collectible finance. With his interests firmly fixed, learned mentors guiding him, and the auction site eBay on the scene, Sean seemed fixed to dive deeper into collectible finance, but in young adulthood, life threw him a curveball that would ultimately lead to YouTube. Now, on the personal side, when I was in my 20s, I started getting sick very bad. It was something that doctors could not explain. What happened was they started to do tests on me, and it would take many, many years, well into my 30s. But what it led to was a diagnosis of celiac disease. But this is something that took many, many years to diagnose. So back when I was doing the eBay thing, I realized I kind of had to find a way. To, I, I was ready to diversify from my business because I was getting sick. They didn't know what I was going to have at that particular point in time. So I sold off the business right around 2007, 2008. I did it very quietly. My life was kind of in transition. And even before this, I've worked a plethora of corporate jobs. I was always a hard worker. I always did the antiques and collectibles on the side. 
So right when this happened, I started writing eBay guides online for just eBay for free. They had this thing where you could write guides, like product reviews, whatever it was, anything you wanted to write about. And I started exposing my secrets about the antiques and collectibles trade. I gained a following for doing this. Now today, obviously these guides, eBay doesn't do anything with guides anymore. It was an old thing. They retired it several years back. But somebody reached out to me and they said, Sean, you're really good. You really understand this material. I learned a lot from you. You should reach out to so-and-so. They knew of this publication, Antiques and Auction News, that was looking for a writer. So I reached out to the editor and I said, hey, this is very interesting. I've never done this before. I was just told that you guys are looking for another writer. If I'd give you sample work, you might be able to review it and you might see if it's something that you're looking for. And I knew at this time, freelance writers don't earn that much. So I knew it was only going to be a very minimal paycheck at best to do this. So I reached out and they read a couple of my writings and they said, you know what? We would like to give you a chance. So in 2013, I went right into that, was working a corporate job. And then I went right into writing for antiques and auction news. And my articles were to premiere every two weeks. The first time I started to write articles, I'm sure that a lot of people were like, who is this young dude? So it was very difficult at first to find my footing because most of the people that write for antique publications, I don't mean to be rude by stating this, but most of them are baby boomers. You're really not finding, now you are, you're finding some Gen Xers that write for these publications and even millennials and younger for some of the more hip pop culture based publications out there that cater to that side of the trade. But I was writing for an antique publication. So I was kind of considered very young. I found my footing by just talking about pop culture collectibles at first. And then what I did was I slowly introduced financial concepts. And almost all of my articles now are predominantly written about the financial side of the antiques and collectibles trade, the risks, the rewards, and how these markets work. So this went on for several years, and people started hunting me down through social media, LinkedIn, Facebook, and these were not just regular people. I was getting contacted by CEOs, people that had a lot of money, who somehow came across my articles. They remembered my name and they decided to hunt me down through social media and they were sending me messages. And at first I started to ignore the messages because I didn't know why they were contacting me. I also thought it might be a scam and they got more aggressive, more aggressive, more people started contacting me. So I started responding and just saying, hey, I'm glad you like my work. Thank you so much for reaching out. They wanted to hire me to analyze some of these markets, whether it was rare coins, comic books, art. A lot of these individuals are reaching out to me for consulting advice. And I said, well, I'm really not a consultant. I've never done this before. All is what I do is I write articles in the antiques and collectibles trade. And I remember there was one individual. I don't want to state his name because I don't want to put him on the spot. We still communicate. We're still fairly good friends. Still utilizes my services to this very day. But he was CEO of a major company. And he's the one that said, you know, you really have talent but you don't have confidence that goes along with that talent. It's a shame. And that stuck with me in my mind to the point where this is really what sparked something where I said, okay, it looks like I'm probably going to be a part-time consultant in the antiques and collectibles trade, at least at this point in time. 
I really didn't want anyone to know that I was doing this. So I told him, I told a couple of people, hey, you know what? I'm going to take you guys on as clients. I'll help you guys with this. All is what I ask. If you know somebody that needs my services, I'm not going to advertise. Just put my name out there. So that's what really led to the consulting side. Then I want to say 2017, 2018, YouTube started going haywire. You had a lot of people coming on YouTube, TikTok, trying to tell people how to speculate, how to invest in these markets. This was at a time, I don't know if any of the people listening to this know who Rudy Without Investments is down in Florida. You had some of these other smaller YouTubers that were coming into this space and they were stating, hey, you can look at Magic the Gathering cards or Pokemon cards or comic books or rare coins from an investment perspective. You can invest in this stuff. Well, naturally, with my knowledge, with my understanding, this really piqued my interest. And from early on, I was a subscriber and a fan and a viewer. Today, they have hundreds of thousands of subscribers because they really blew up. Because now a lot of the younger generations that may have been soured on stock market investing, who do not understand traditional finance investing, now they could feel comfortable investing in something they grew up with, whether it be Magic the Gathering cards, Pokemon, comic books, video games, Nike Air Jordans, whatever it was. If they had a passion for something, they could now attempt to invest in it. And this is where... It gets a little bit interesting because I had a problem with the advice that was being put out there. There was a lot of bad advice where people were under the impression that they could just hoard this stuff. Or if they bought the vintage stuff, it always goes up in value, meaning collectible markets never decrease. Demand is always constant and increasing. And these items automatically are on a upside trajectory for the rest of their existence. And that is 100% false. That is not how these markets work. So I was getting a little bit frustrated. And other YouTubers out there that had a following knew who I was because some of the more observant ones came across my work and they reached out and they said, hey, Sean, you know what? You have so much knowledge. Why don't you transition to YouTube? Well, I'm somebody, believe it or not, I am not a techie. I'm not really big on editing. I'm not big on working on lighting, any of this stuff that makes most of these YouTubers successful. It's just not my thing. And I was always also against putting myself out there because I guess part of me at that particular point in time was scared of the consequences, the good and bad, not just the bad, but I do know that it would involve putting myself out there, facing criticism, having to deal with negative comments, negative feedback, arguing with people potentially, disappointing people who just wanted my help and wanted to hear a different alternate perspective than the truth that I was about to give them. So for the longest time, I put off going to YouTube. I said, I am not going to put out a channel. So then right around 2019, this was before the pandemic, I had been on the dating scene for a while and I met this one woman and it just didn't work out. And I was pretty much crushed when that relationship fell through. So I had time on my hands and I was in a lot of heartache. And those two things are not a good mix. So I finally took the advice of other YouTubers out there and I just came down to my basement office. I turned on a camera and I just started talking. A lot of my earlier videos, even the videos that I produce now, they're not of the best quality 
because I don't consider myself a top tier YouTuber. I just consider myself a guy who has all this knowledge about antiques, collectibles, and finance, and just wants to share it with the world. It took several months, but slowly but surely, I started to build a very, very small following. I think I had like close to a thousand subscribers. And people were starting to talk at me because this was the time when graded video games were becoming a thing. You had Wada Games that was a new grading company coming into this market and they were really coming into this market hard and a lot of poor collectors got caught up in the hype, not realizing that prices were being propelled into the stratosphere due to some ethical, what we now believe to be unethical business practices that were taken upon by some of the major players, by some individuals that were acting in this market in bad faith. At least that's that's how I analyze this. That's how a lot of experts in the antiques trade at the time also analyze this. Well, I started doing a lot of videos on this particular talking point and trying to teach the core fundamentals of collectible finance, how demand is always more important than supply. Right now, demand, when we're talking about graded video games, is starting to overtake supply to the point that these prices are no longer guaranteed. So a lot of people started to watch my videos because I was giving the other side of the argument that they weren't getting from a lot of the people that were talking about how great the antiques and collectibles trade is from an investment standpoint. So I kind of became the negative Nelly, as some people would describe it, the reality that the market needed. And a lot of other YouTubers, mainly Carl Jopes and Pat the NES Punk, who I respect greatly, they caught wind of my work. And they started reaching out to me and they said, Sean, we want to do a video about what's happening in this market. We want you to be part of it. And I didn't know what to think at first because at this particular point in time, I was a small fish in a very large pond to the point where even if I made a mistake on YouTube or on camera, it really didn't matter much. Because most people didn't pay too much attention to my work. Again, I had around 3,000 subscribers and growing at this particular point in time. So I agreed to work behind the scenes and be into this particular video that Carl Jobs was doing on this phenomenon with Wada Games and all of these games. So the video premiered, and I remember thinking, at best, I don't have anything to worry about. It's going to get 100,000 views, maybe a quarter million. People will watch it, then it'll die down and it'll all go away. Well, when that video hit, I think like within the first week or even less than that, it got over a million views and people were coming to me out of the woodwork, either wanting me to do a collaboration with them through YouTube, or they just wanted to talk to me, people in my personal life, because I didn't tell anyone. One thing about me is my name on YouTube is Reserved Investments, but myself, I'm Sean Cermak. I try to keep the two separate. I don't try to intermingle them at times if I can help it because I like to keep my private life out of it. So I look at it as, and this is going to sound corny, almost like maybe a superhero or a supervillain, if you want to put me in that category as well, where Sean Cermak's a person, but his alter identity is reserved investments. And believe it or not, that's the advice that I give to other YouTubers that are just starting out because you don't know what the algorithm is going to do with your work. If you have that mentality, it allows you to separate yourself from your online identity so you can say, well, it wasn't me who's done that or said that. It was my alter ego. So therefore, if somebody leaves you a bad negative comment, 
Well, that's not to me. That's to reserved investments. So this is one way that I use to trick my brain to allow me to put myself out there like this. Because again, I am the type of person that likes to pull the strings. I'm the puppet master behind the scenes. I really didn't do this for fame. I didn't do this for notoriety. I didn't do this so that I would be named or mentioned in a lot of videos or, well, collectible expert Sean Cermic says this. That's not why I did this. I did this because I had a drive to educate about how these markets work. And I think given all the incorrect, if I may use that term, perspectives that are being thrown about, about investing in these markets over the short term and over the long term, I felt that I had an obligation to set the record straight given my background. And that's pretty much what propelled me to YouTube. Sean considers his channel a no-frills production that is centered around passing on high-quality information in an authentic way. Despite steady growth, he has a love-hate relationship with being a YouTuber and often agonizes over aspects of it behind the scenes. He still maintains a corporate job and posts videos on the side. The one thing that I will say is it's been a very unique ride to get to this point. I often joke if I ever had to write an autobiography, I would call it the accidental YouTuber, something like that, just because I want people to know my core personality isn't one that would force myself to do YouTube. It's not something that I enjoy. It's more something that I use to educate and inform about. And that's a key difference. And that's why like other YouTubers ask me for advice all the time. And I'm like, I don't know why you're coming to me. I don't know editing. I don't even think I put out a good presentation. Just the knowledge that I put forth, I think, is good. So you could literally listen to my videos in most cases and get the same effect as watching me on camera. In most cases, I'm very distracting on camera because of the fact that I move while I'm talking. I'm very animated. And some people love that and some people don't. People now kind of know the truth about me, where before I was kind of shrouded in mystery. I never really talked about collectible finance. I never talked about investing. I didn't even talk that much about my personal life, even if you were close to me. So it's very interesting because now that I've become more public with all of this information, with starting the channel, with my consulting work, with the fact that I also speculate and invest in these markets, the fact that I sell on eBay, I do sell some of this stuff on certain platforms. Now a lot of people are looking at me and they're going, well, gee, Sean really doesn't need to be here. I choose to do the corporate job because it kind of comes easy to me. I've been there 14 years. I get health insurance. I obviously have a 401k. I get paid time off, the whole shebang. And I also can work from home. So it's really not taking that much out of my life in that sense. When I look at it from that standpoint, it's also something that is not really that challenging. And I hate to say that because I know that eventually some higher up is going to watch this interview and they're going to go, oh, he doesn't think he's challenged. I'm going to make sure that that's not a problem going forward. So I'm sure that this could change. But I do know the way that corporate America is playing out. There's a lot of layoffs, especially at my company. At some point, I'm probably not going to survive an upcoming corporate town. So at that point, I will have a decision to make and maybe that'll cause me to go full in on YouTube and everything that I'm doing, rather than stretching myself thin to the point where I work like 12 to 16 hours a day, I may just focus on one thing. It could also be though, if that were to happen, 
I may also choose to go back in the finance because I do have a background in finance and merge some of these things together. Maybe start a different company that kind of embraces all of this that I've been teaching. I don't know. I will tell you this. As of right now, I have no plans to shut down the channel as much as sometimes if I wake up to like a bad comment, like on my YouTube channel, a negative comment, something like that, I will get in these moods where it's like, you know, I could just delete this channel and this would all be over. I have no plan to do that. I am still putting out content. I think that people criticize me. I will say this because I don't put out a lot of content compared to other YouTubers. Like there are time spans where I will go two weeks without putting out a new video. And I do that because I have a very obsessive mind where I ruminate in a lot of things. So I'll put out a video. I'll read through the comments. And if I get a negative comment, I will ruminate on that comment for the next five days. And I don't tell people this normally because it gives ammunition to the trolls then to do this on a regular basis. But what will happen is that'll have a profound effect on where I will literally slow the content that I'm putting out on a regular basis as a result of that one bad comment. And I've gotten better with this, but it still does affect me to the point where I have to literally schedule time to work on YouTube videos. Otherwise, I'll get into this mode where I'll be like, well, I don't need to put out a video right now. I don't need to comment on this. I don't need to comment on this record-breaking sale. There are times when I wake up and I feel, you know what? This is too much. I just want to delete the channel and go back to where I was before. But that's what keeps me going. And every time I get into that mindset, there are other YouTubers out there that they even tell me because they know the way that I think. They're like, Sean, if you ever want to delete this channel, please reach out to me so I can at least try to talk to you about it. One thing that I am very good at, I understand that I have a lot of knowledge in these markets and I want to respect other content creators' opinions. So let's say that a sale breaks and it's a record-breaking sale or a scandal breaks with one of the grading companies or something. I won't put out my video until most of the other content creators in the collectibles sphere or this collectibles finance space have had time to comment on it in most cases. And I do that out of respect because I will only put out a video if I have a unique talking point to present. For instance, CGC just went through something where somebody figured out how to cut open a comic book grading folder from one of their graded comic books, and they found a way to switch out the book. And a lot of the comic book collecting community was up in arms over this, and there was a lot of people doing videos on it. And I said, you know what? I want to wait to see what those individuals have to say. I don't want to jump the gun on this. And it allowed me time to kind of reflect, kind of obsess over this situation that was occurring and by the time I put out my video, I was like, you know what, guys, this is only affecting 0.00001% of all the books out there. The comic book collecting community, in my opinion, was overreacting to that issue. So I brought a different perspective that was kind of uncommon for that scenario. So that's kind of the way my mind works. I do tend to spend a lot ruminating on the subject matter that I put out and future subject matter. I often joke at any given time, I have 100 videos in what I call pre-production I will literally start working on a video and I may not finish it for six months down the line and I don't do any editing. So really what happens is once I start the planning stages, once I do a mock video run on it, I will then record that particular video. And if I go back and I play it and I think it's not good enough to the point where all is what I'm doing is moving my hand saying things like, okay, do you understand? I don't think that I'm conveying the message properly. I will delete it. And then what will happen is I'll go on to something else. I won't stay focused on that video. Several months goes by, then I go, oh, 
okay, now I got to go back and work on this video again. I don't think a lot of people understand how much time it takes to be a YouTuber, even if you're somebody that doesn't do any editing, especially if you're somebody like me that does it all in one take. If you do a video all in one take, if you screw up 15 minutes in and that's a 30 minute video, you're now starting from the beginning again. So that's what kind of makes my channel a little bit unique in that respect. Because again, I do not have the time to sit down and learn editing. I've tried. It is not something I am comfortable doing. It is not something that I like. There's a lot of Timmy's, Kimmy's, and Poindexter's out there that think Timmy's, Kimmy's, and Poindexter's. A lot of the Timmy's, Kimmy's, and Poindexter's. Timmy's, Kimmy's, and Poindexter's didn't listen to me. They said it's all going to go to zero. Is there any hope for them? Is there any hope for the human race? The Timmy's, Kimmy's, and Poindexter's. Yes, when I started my particular YouTube channel, believe it or not, those terms have been around for quite some time. I did not create those terms. No other YouTuber created those terms. Timmy's, I added the Kimmy's, I won't lie. Timmy's and Poindexter's have been around since the beginning. All is what my definition of a Timmy, Kimmy, and Poindexter is. A Timmy is somebody that doesn't know any better. He's a starry-eyed speculator who thinks everything that he buys is going to go up in value if he holds it long enough. And all of these items that are being mass-produced even today are investments in the antiques and collectibles trade. So he's just somebody who's a little naive, who doesn't know any better, and just loves spending his money on antiques and collectibles and calling them investments. A Kimmy, that's the female version, because I didn't want to sound sexist. You know, If I keep calling everybody a Timmy, people are going to be like, well, wait a minute, there's women in the trade too. So it's just one of those things that hit me. I'm going to go Timmy's and Kimmy's. A Poindexter is more or less a hipster. It's somebody who is attracted to these markets because he sees other people doing it. He says, oh, I'm going to get involved in that market. But he really doesn't have the passion for it to stay in it the long term. And he really doesn't know how these markets work. So what will happen is he'll end up coming into the market. And let's say that he gets the collecting bug for classic video games. He'll end up going on eBay. He'll end up buying a ton, spending a lot of money on classic video games. He'll keep the collection. He'll get bored with the collection. Then a couple of years later, he'll sell the entire collection. Back when YouTube first became a thing, like right around 2014, 2015, when YouTube really had a lot of creators that were hitting their stride, there were some individuals that were coming into a lot of these markets, whether it was video games or Pokemon cards or vintage toys. They would go to the market, they would start a YouTube channel, and they would start talking about all this stuff that they were buying. But in all actuality, when we look at collectors, collectors are born, they are not made. If you don't have the true collecting gene, you may potentially come into these markets either through YouTube or if you're watching American Pickers, Pawn Stars, you may say, wow, that looks exciting. Or maybe you see Storage Wars on TV and you're like, well, gee, I could buy storage unit auctions. This looks fun. The problem is, if you get into the market that way, chances are you're not a true born collector. You're just somebody passing through. Those particular individuals only have a lifespan in these markets of roughly two to four years. We know this because that's what the data tells us. Then they burn out, then they end up selling all the stuff, and they don't really return to collecting ever again. So that's the definition of a collector, if that makes sense. Sean lays out his views on collectible finance and the other Prussian issues he covers on his channel. If you're collecting solely because you have a passion for something, that is the right reason to collect. Now, if you want to switch over and become either a speculator or investor, you have to then 
learn to recognize that you're going from an abstract mindset, which is what emotion and nostalgia is, to a more logical mindset, which is what finance and investing is. So if you're going to go from being a collector to an investor, let's say, or even a speculator, you have to learn to control the nostalgia and the passion that you have for the item in question. And this is a mistake that a lot of collectors that are convincing themselves that they're investing in these markets make all the time. You also have to realize that what is hot now will not be hot most likely 10, 15, 20 years from now. The only constant that you need to know about the entire antiques and collectibles trade is that it is constantly changing and evolving. Nothing is ever the same. If you want a market that is going to stay the same, you should be looking at high profile markets on the antique side of the equation, not on the collectible side. Because in all actuality, the antiques and collectibles trade, why we call it the antiques and collectibles trade, these are two different market dynamics just have overlap. Antiques are rooted in history. Collectibles are rooted in nostalgia. So if you're going to attempt to choose one of those markets to invest in, I'm here to tell you, if you buy right, the money and the stability is on the antique side of the equation. Collectibles are consistently changing. The definition of a collectible is an item that sells for more than what it did at retail when it was first released. The definition of an antique is a collectible or an, any item in particular that is 100 years of age or older. So if I was going to put my money in something where somebody said to me, hey, this particular item can't lose money or it has to at least go up in value. I would be going after historical documents. I would be going after things rooted in history. Whereas if I was going to speculate over the short term, and what I consider to be the short term is five years or less, in some cases, 10 years or less, that's where I would choose pop culture collectibles. Now, certain markets on the pop culture side of the trade, they are showing strong resilience. And what I mean by that is if we look at comic books, comic books are a prime example of more of a boomer collectible that became a thing with Gen Xers, and now a portion of millennials have gravitated towards it. Comic books were affected by more what is happening in the overall world than that what's happened in comic book culture. And what I mean by that is we have to look at the catalyst that caused comic books to pop over the last 20 years. You had the advent of third-party grading, and you had the Marvel and DC cinematic universes. Now, in my opinion, if I look at the comic book market, if I look 10, 20, 30, 40 years out, I see a lot of problems simply because we've had such a run up in prices in the last 10 years or so. It's not sustainable. Those gains are not going to continue. It's just like if we look at the Pokemon market, love the people that want to argue with me about Pokemon. Yes, Pokemon at present time, at the recording of this interview is the most valuable pop culture brand in history. It is the number one licensed property ever created right now. It even beats out Star Wars. Star Wars was the proverbial king before Pokemon came along. However, if you're going to invest in Pokemon today and you're thinking of holding those particular items for 10, 20, 30, 40 years, you better hope that demand for Pokemon, along with the popularity, increases exponentially because that's when you're going to be selling those products. So if you're paying a premium for something now and demand falls, you're going to take a beating when you go to sell those items. That's why I tell people, if you're going to play these markets, you should already be financially established. You should already have a well-diversified portfolio. 
geared towards index funds, mutual funds, ETFs, stocks, bonds, even real estate. Then you could take a little bit of that money. You can come into the antiques and collectibles trade and you can have fun and you can invest and you can learn how these markets work. The problem is now we have people that are putting all their money in antiques, collectibles, cryptocurrency, Bitcoin, gold, silver, to the point where they don't have anything invested in traditional assets, traditional financial assets that have strong underlying cash flows. And that's why so many people are gambling in these markets and they're not even realizing. Anytime someone chooses to speculate in these markets, in all actuality, they're gambling. There are really no fundamentals we have to look at unless, again, you're on the antique side of the equation. So, for instance, if you want to put $100,000 in rare coins, I can show you how to do that because we can go back well over 100 years and we can look at the pricing history of that market as it ebbs and flows through every other event that happened in the overall economy. If we want to look at what coins were doing during the Great Depression, we can go back and look at the value of rare coins during the Great Depression, even the 2008-2009 financial crisis. A lot of these pop culture collectibles do not have that staying power, and they do not have that resiliency. So that's why a lot of these younger collectors that are not even understanding traditional finance, they think they know collectible finance. What's happened over the course of the last five to 10 years, a lot of these individuals got lucky, nothing more. They think they're geniuses because they were riding high on this wave of pop culture enthusiasm that propelled a lot of these markets to new heights. And what we saw is we hit the peak during 2020 and 2021 during the COVID pandemic. That's when prices hit a all time high. And then what happened? They came crashing down. The great video game market is down 80 to 90 percent at present time. The vintage comic book market is down 20 to 30 to 40 percent in certain cases. The Pokemon market dropped 10 to 20 percent in certain instances. Magic the Gathering got decimated. A lot of these markets fell from their highs in 2020 and 2021. Even Rolex watches. Rolex watches were a very popular commodity during the pandemic because Rolex had to shut down production. And of course, Rolex also plays the mass produced luxury good scarcity game, where pretty much they control how much of those watches they put out on the overall market. Well, what Rolex did was Rolex also pulled back production. So prices soared in the secondary market for a lot of modern and vintage Rolex watches. Well, today, that market's down 20, 30, 40, 50% or more in certain cases. So what you need to understand when you look at the antiques and collectibles trade, it's not a panacea of wealth. It's a panacea of risk. And you need to know how to navigate that risk. I do want to state, everybody thinks of me as a negative Nelly. I'm actually more bullish than most experts in the antiques and collectibles trade. You know, early on in this interview, I brought up Harry Rinker. Harry Rinker is much more bearish against investing in these markets than myself. I do see a lot of opportunity and potential in these markets. If you buy right, you understand the risks, you understand how these markets work over the short term versus the long term, and you also have a well-diversified portfolio already put in place or one that you're working towards building. If you do all of that, antiques and collectibles are a great way to diversify assets. Now, you have to choose wisely. You have to understand the difference between mass-produced scarcity versus that of organic collectability. Let me just tell you what the differences are. A lot of companies right now, 
whether it be Funko Pop, Lego, Nintendo even does this, Pokemon, Magic the Gathering, a lot of these companies, they'll take a product and they'll limit production on that product or they'll only put it in production for a couple of months. Then they'll discontinue that particular item where prices for that item shoot up in the secondary market. That is not due to organic collectability. Now, on the other side of the equation, what's the definition of organic collectability? Well, if you're wondering why a copy of Action Comics 1 from 1938 sells usually when it comes up for bid in any type of condition for either hundreds of thousands of dollars or millions of dollars at auction, that particular comic book, when it was produced in 1938, people were not pulling comic books off the newsstands, keeping them in mint condition and saving them as investments in 1938. In the year 2024, they are, but 1938, that was not a known practice. So as a result, just due to overall rarity and the fact that that particular issue represents the very first appearance of Superman, it has that much value on the market. So that is a prime example of organic collectability versus mass-produced scarcity or hype. This is why I warn so many Pokemon collectors, so many pop culture collectors that collect these items that are produced in the modern era. Close to 90% of them are not going to perform the way you think they're going to perform on the secondary market when we go out 10, 20, 30 years. If you're going to invest in these markets, you got to go after the truly rare and expensive stuff. And unfortunately, this is where the financial markets differ from that of the antiques and collectibles trade. If you want to invest in the financial markets, even if you're going in just doing index funds through Vanguard, you want to diversify your holdings, meaning you might want an S&P 500 index fund. You might want an international stock fund. You might also want to add a total bond fund. And that makes up your portfolio. In the antiques and collectibles trade, diversification can get you in the trouble if you don't have the means to go after the more expensive items. For instance, let's talk about Pokemon. If I'm going to invest in Pokemon, and there's a lot of risk in this market because it's only been around 30 years, Pokemon came to the United States in the late 1990s. It's still very new. But if I'm going to invest in this market, I want to go after the scarcest, vintage, mintiest cards I can find because those are the particular items that have true organic collectability. And if I'm investing over the long term, there's upside potential to those items, assuming that demand at least stays the same or demand increases over the next coming years. So that's an example as to how collectibles can be great to diversify into, but most people make bad decisions on what they're buying and what they're holding. Let's go to comic books or rare coins. Comic books, if you're going to invest in comic books, you want preferably key golden age, key silver age, Maybe key Bronze Age, depending on how many copies of some of these books are out there. I do not like the Incredible Hulk 181s, the Giant Size X-Men 1s, the Amazing Spider-Man 129s. But there are books that flew under the radar, like House of Secrets 92, First Appearance of Swamp Thing, where if you're getting that book in 9.2, 9.4 condition, due to how many copies are out there, that could potentially be a good long-term play. If you're willing to be patient, and you understand the risks of tying up that much money in a comic book that is pretty much just going to sit in a safety deposit box or on your wall and not pay you any income for the next 10 to 20 years. If you're willing to pursue that as a risk, collectibles can be a great diversification, but they should never be the core crux 
of any investment portfolio. They weren't designed to be. And let me just state this. One of the things that upsets me about the antiques and collectibles trade right now, especially in the year 2024, the year that we're living in, is there's a lot of grading companies. There's a lot of auction companies that put out this idea where you can invest in these items. We have terms like investment grade that make it seem, oh, if I buy that item in investment grade, it's guaranteed to go up in value. That is not what the term investment grade means. All is what investment grade means is that it is preferably that particular item that you are buying in the top 15% of condition related to other copies out there of that same item. That's all that investment grade means. And people take it to mean it's a good investment. That is a complete fallacy. Sean highlights the dangers and pitfalls of becoming too financially involved in collectibles versus traditional investments. When you invest in the antiques and collectibles trade, when you invest in Bitcoin, cryptocurrency, gold, silver, just know that for the most part, with few exceptions, these markets are completely unregulated. Since I started my YouTube channel, I felt very bad for a lot of the people that got caught up in the greatest video game hype. And after the bubble burst, Carl Jopes documentary was put out. People were coming to me for advice. I got asked, you know, Sean, how did this happen? How was this allowed to happen? When you choose to invest in these markets, the reason why it seems that you can, if you want to, you can make money in these markets if you know what you're doing. But with that comes a lot of risk. Because again, the government isn't regulating any of these markets. And I know some people watching probably think that's a beautiful thing. Well, I can tell you, I was back in the 1980s with coins. And again, I was very young at this particular point in time. I also remember when the coin grading companies and certain auctioneers got in trouble because they were priming the pump, telling people on Main Street that they need to invest like people on Wall Street. And the people on Wall Street are buying rare coins. So a lot of companies came into the market and they unethically, unfortunately, sold the average person overpriced coins simply because they were third-party graded, telling them that these would be a great investment. That particular story has a silver lining, though, because the government did eventually come in on those companies and they were forced to pay fines. They were forced to pretty much, in certain cases, give up their business so that they couldn't take advantage of other people. In the year 2024, that is not likely to happen due to the political divide that exists in the United States at present time. And also the way that people sometimes see these markets. It's just like cryptocurrency and Bitcoin. We all saw the, the fiasco with FTX and Celsius. And, you know, I felt very bad because I had people coming at me telling me, Sean, you don't understand cryptocurrency. I'm putting all my money in FTX. I'm putting all my money in Celsius. And a lot of these people, they went belly up to the point where I know certain individuals that lost six figures. I know one particular individual lost seven figures, almost took his own life. That's why I always warn people, anything that you do in extreme in unregulated markets, you really have to be careful because it is a risk and there's not going to be somebody there that's going to come save you. You know, if you put your money with Vanguard or T. Rowe Price or Fidelity or Charles Schwab or any major brokerage house, they are obligated by rules, procedures, regulations, and the law to act accordingly. Now, you may do something stupid. That's not to say that you can't go all in on a penny stock that goes to zero or the latest MAME stock, but overall, they can't just take your money and run. And this is something that a lot of people do not understand very much about 
And unfortunately, it's affecting younger people more than people my generation. Because let's be realistic here. In today's society, younger people, they don't know any better. They go on their phone, they go on YouTube, they go on TikTok, and they see their favorite social media influencer living in, you know, a million dollar mansion who has a ton of Pokemon cards, a ton of video games. And if that influencer, heaven forbid, if he takes a sponsorship from a shady Bitcoin or a cryptocurrency company, or maybe he just really likes Pokemon cards and he pushes Pokemon cards, a particular individual is getting very bad investment advice at a young age. And what makes this sad is a lot of people who invest do not understand the time value of money. This is a simple concept where if you're in your early 20s and you start putting like three or four or $5,000 away in index funds in a well-diversified portfolio, you can literally stop putting that same three to $5,000 away when you hit 30, 32, and you will have more money than somebody that starts at 30 putting that same amount of money away and they do it for 20 years straight. The person that only did it for 10 years or 12 years, and they did it from 22 to 32 or 22 to 34, they're going to have more money because of the time value of that time that that money had to compound over the long term. It's going to grow higher than the person that started later. It's very scary to me when I see a lot of these young individuals go, well, Sean, the stock market's a scam. You're right. You shouldn't be investing in individual stocks. But index funds are not a scam. Index funds have been shown to be very resilient. As a matter of fact, if the economy crashes tomorrow, I would tell you to do what I did back in 2008, 2009, when the stock market crashed. Buy more index funds because we see how that pays off over the long term. And unfortunately, everybody wants to get rich quick today. They don't want to take the time. Here's a statistic for you. Most people get this wrong when I ask this question. I'm not going to put you on the spot. I'm just going to give you the answer. But if we look at the average age of a millionaire living in the United States, when I ask younger people that, they tell me it's usually someone in their 30s or 40s or sometimes in their 20s. The correct answer, the average millionaire living in the United States is 57 years of age. You yourself, you have a 4% chance of becoming a millionaire by the time you are 57. This has already been put out there in multiple studies. The person, however, that grew up watching TikTok videos or YouTube or all these social media influencers that are probably, let's be realistic, that are probably for the most part fake, these particular individuals make it seem like everybody in their late 20s, early 30s, even late 30s, early 40s, they're all rich. They're all driving expensive cars. They all got Rolexes. They all got wads of cash. And they're all having the time of their life. And it's you that's missing out. When in all actuality, a very small percentage of individuals are ever at that level. And what I tell young people is, even if you just want to get to my level, Whatever you think that is, you're really going to have to put your nose to the grindstone. You're going to have to invest regularly. You're going to have to make good financial decisions because I myself, I know it seems now at the age of 47 that I have all this knowledge. I did make some mistakes. I've made some mistakes in bad investments. I've made some mistakes in bad relationships that I was in that I didn't know any better. I've made mistakes by trusting the wrong people and allowing them to come in my life. I've made mistakes even in. My corporate jobs that I've worked, I will stay at the same company 
for the longest time, even if I know firsthand I could go get a job in another company and earn more, I'll still stay loyal to the same company over and over again until they finally lay me off or let me go. It's that bad. So I have my own issues that I've had to work. And that's why I try to share my experience and my knowledge on not just the subject of investing on antiques and collectibles. I also try to give knowledge about how to just be a better human being, how to be ethical, caring, how to not be a predatory person, how to live your best life and be realistic in what you can achieve and what you can hope to achieve. Because I'm here to tell you, when we look at the differences between free will and determinism, I am a huge fan on determinism. And people often challenge me on this. And they say, Sean, why are you a determinist? I would think given your life choices and the way that you turned out, you would be a free will theorist or a free will thinker. The answer is, when you look at zip codes that people grew up in, you can almost with 90% accuracy predict how they're going to turn out. So there's a lot of people that think they're going to be the exception to the rule. When in most cases, if they were going to be the exception to the rule, they would have already started doing different, having different habits, having more healthier habits at a younger age. For instance, when I started on eBay, I was making a lot of money. The smartest thing I ever did, I tell people this, it has nothing to do with the antiques and collectibles. When I made money in that market, I started investing a lot of it in index funds. I remember I had a Vanguard account at the age of 18, and I was religiously writing checks. I remember writing checks out for $30 back then. Today, just to give you an example, today that money grew. It's probably $500 in certain instances, depending on what it was invested in because of the compound interest of all that time, 30 years sitting in an S&P, sitting in a total stock market index fund. Maybe I'm exaggerating a little there. It'd probably be a couple hundred. Let's use that as an example. But still, that's how wealth is built over time. There is no shortcut to life. You know, I've said this on my channel before, and I'll say it again. People are looking for the Konami code of life. If you grew up in the Nintendo era, I'm sure that a lot of you guys remember the Konami code where you entered it in the controller and you got 30 lives to start eat almost any game, whether it was Contra, Gradius, Super Contra, all the hard Konami games. There is no shortcut to life. You may get lucky. You may possess more knowledge than other individuals, but you still have a skill set that you have to pull from. Maybe you came from a wealthier family. That's great, but you still have to use it and you have to have the patience and understanding that building wealth takes time. It is not something that just happens. And I really think that's what's sad because there's so many people just like throwing proverbial spaghetti against the wall. They're putting their money in Bitcoin, meme stocks, penny stocks, whatever social media influences are pushing. That's not how you get wealth. Sean outlines how interested parties can truly learn the principles behind collectible finance. Even if it means that you unsubscribe from my channel or you don't watch my channel anymore, I usually tell people they need to get off of the internet. The internet is actually at a point where there's so much advice out there. You could have eight different content creators show up in your feed and they could all tell you an opposite thing. So what I tell people is we have to go back to basics. That's why I do videos where I tell people what books they should be reading if they want to learn collectible finance or even investing in general. And I do that on purpose because it forces them 
to go offline and actually just interact with that book and the author as they wrote it and as that information was intended. There is no other third-party perspective provided on that advice. That's why I love doing that. Turn off the internet and actually study this stuff from a holistic standpoint without a social media influencer or a content creator trying to sway you one way or another. If you do your own research on investing and collectible finance, I assure you, you're going to come across the same opinions and the same information that I put forth on my channel. That doesn't mean that I'm always right. In certain cases, I love the people that come to me and want to argue with me because it shows that they have a passion for these markets. Sometimes I feel a little bit gaslit by my own content where I'll interact with someone and I'll be like, that person has a lot of passion. Maybe I wish I had that much passion. Maybe I am too negative in some of these topics that I talk about. So that's where I tell people, if you really want to learn about investing and collectible finance, your path before coming to the internet should be off the internet. You got to learn the basics. Like go read the books that Jack Bogle, creator of Vanguard, go read a lot of his books on finance. The Little Bread Book of Investing, I think it's called. There's a lot of books that he wrote where he argues for an index fund. And a lot of these books were written back in the 80s and 90s, and they're still relevant today. Because if you look at the gains of index funds, you can do your own research and you see they pretty much outperformed active investors to a two to one ratio over that time span. So if you read a lot of these hardcore finance books, even collectible finance books like Killer Stuff and Tons of Money is a great book that I recommend. The Psychology of Money is another book that I recommend. A Random Walk Down Wall Street. If you're somebody that has a financial background, I would also recommend Collectible Investments for the High Net Worth Investor. You know, one of my big regrets on YouTube is it's very hard to teach master's level and above courses on YouTube because the average person that comes to YouTube doesn't want to get inundated with financial formulas almost like a math class where they literally have to pay attention to everything you say. Most people want some entertainment in what content they're consuming. But if you read the book, Collectible Investments for the High Net Worth Investor, they actually go through hardcore financial formulas that you can apply to certain markets in the antiques and collectibles trade. And it's very fascinating. That's why I have people who come to me and they say, hey, Sean, I have an MBA in business or finance, I always recommend that book and they get a lot out of it. Now, if you're new to investing in general, you will struggle with that book. Don't start with that book. But what I will tell people is they have to begin with the basics. I honestly believe that one of the reasons that I became somewhat successful, and I'll word it that way because I'm not somebody that you know likes to brag or boast or anything. But one of the reasons is back in the 80s and 90s when I started out, there was no internet. If I wanted to get information on something, I had mentors in the trade. There was no other way to get information on these talking points than sit down with people who lived and experienced these particular issues that I wanted to talk about. And they had no reason to misguide me because it wasn't like they were creating like a YouTube channel or something that has an algorithm they get ad revenue from. They had no reason to misguide me. So that's what made it great. Today, it's very hard to know who to trust. I mean, I can recommend certain YouTube channels, but again, most of them have a level of hype added in. That's why I usually tell people, if you want to learn this stuff, begin at the beginning, start with books. Spend a Friday night, spend a Saturday night, 
Go to Barnes and Noble, buy a cup of coffee, buy a cup of herbal tea, and just sit there and read books. No one's going to say anything to you if you buy something in their cafe and you're sitting there for four hours reading these books. I'm not saying you have to buy them, but at least get the knowledge that way. Start with finance, then slowly find your way to the antiques and collectibles trade. You can start by reading a price guide. Just read a book on basic finance, understand the fundamentals, then go and get a copy of Warman's or Antique Traders Yearly Price Guide on Antiques and Collectibles and start reading it, just starting to get exposure to these markets. From there, you can read the book, Killer Stuff of Tons of Money, Psychology of Money. You're well on your way. One thing that I will tell you is if you are going to make a go of the antiques and collectibles trade, you have to have an understanding of speculative bubbles. The antiques and collectibles trade works on speculative bubbles. Make no mistake. That's why there's a lot of excellent books I can recommend. Devil Take the Hindmost. That's an excellent book. I know it has a weird name, but it's about speculative bubbles that have percolated literally since the toilet bowl bubble. You remember that, which occurred in Holland in the 1600s, where people were literally paying the price of a house to own one toilet bowl. And they actually thought the price was going to increase exponentially. Now, to be fair, that particular story is a little bit overblown. Everybody wasn't buying and speculating on toilet bowls. It was kind of a niche market, but it was a massive speculative bubble for that time. And this is why I get involved in arguments with cryptocurrency enthusiasts. I tell them right out, how do you know Bitcoin is not going to be the next AOL or the next Netscape? Just because you're putting your money in Bitcoin doesn't mean you're investing in blockchain technology. That is a major mistake that a lot of cryptocurrency investors make. I remember the, the dot-com era bubble very well back in the 1990s, back in the early 2000s when it burst. And I remember getting into arguments. People were putting all their money in AOL and Netscape stock. And I was telling them, you're not investing in the internet. You're investing in a company that just connects you to the internet. And people just didn't learn. And we see how that turned out. And I'm not saying that books are always the best either. There are a lot. I'm just going to use this term. This is a colloquial term. But there are nut jobs that write books. I mean, in today's day and age with self-publishing, anyone can write a book. But if you're going after books that are produced by major publishers, especially on finance, on the antiques and collectibles trade, most likely they're going to vet the person that's writing the book. They're just not going to put out anything and allow people to just talk about something stupid that isn't true. There is another book that I would recommend. And this is a book that's going to be harder to find. And I brought up Harry Rinker now twice in this video. I'm going to bring him up again. There is a book that premiered in the 1980s called How to Make the Most of Your Investments in Antiques and Collectibles. This book caused a firestorm back when it was first produced. It is entitled The First Insider's Guide to Manipulating the Antiques and Collectible Markets to Maximize Your Investment. This was actually written by Harry Rinker. Now, this was written in a pre-internet era. But if you read this book, you can see how certain people even in today's day and age, are using the internet to manipulate the antique and collectibles markets for their own financial gain. Problem is, this book was only printed once, and it is very hard to find. But I usually tell people, if you go on eBay, if you're in a used bookstore and you come across this book, snap it up. It's well worth owning. It's well worth reading. Sean talks about the future of collectible finance, including demographic shifts and the impact of AI.
the future of the antiques and collectibles trade is quite exciting. It's going to be very interesting to see where these markets go. The demographics are a little bit split. When we look at the demographics for antiques and collectibles, a lot of younger people are not gravitating towards physical items like older generations are. Even if we look at Gen Z versus millennials, there are differences there in how they choose to spend their money. We're seeing a lot of younger people are more experience focused than that of having materialistic things. So if that trajectory doesn't change, that is going to have a profound effect on collecting and investing in these markets going forward. Now, obviously, if we're looking at Gen Z, we have 20 to 30 years to go before they're even starting to make an impact in a lot of these markets. Let's be realistic here, especially if we're talking top tier markets where you have to spend tens of thousands of dollars to obtain some of these higher end collectibles or even heaven forbid, six figures or seven figures. But that is going to make a profound impact on these markets. And some are going to suffer as a result of that. Now, when we look at AI, I am very, very impressed with the possibility of what AI can bring to the antiques and collectibles trade. Not only from a standpoint of possibly being able to authenticate a lot of these objects and maybe even grade them as well, but the fact that pricing data in real time Maybe a real thing now going forward. Like right now, if you want to get pricing on any type of antique and collectible, I don't care how liquid, I don't care how popular, it still takes research. You still have to know where to look. Even if you use certain like apps or websites that will pull pricing data together, in most cases, they don't pull all of the data, meaning you're going to have sources that do not report in to that particular application or that particular website. With AI, if we can program AI to be unbiased and just pull all information, if it pulls in that data and it has the ability to do that, it is actually going to help add more authenticity, more validation to a lot of these markets. Because when we do pricing metrics, even auction companies do this. When we look at pricing data, auction companies have a vested interest to not always report on sales that are on the low end of certain popular items. As a matter of fact, there are reports throughout the antiques and collectibles trade that if an item doesn't do really well at auction, the auction company tends to forget about it and it no longer shows up in their previous auction results when you go on their website. There are companies that remove it. Well, with AI, that's going to be a thing of the past. If a particular item sold at a very low amount, that is going to be pulled into that pricing data, which it should be. Just like if an item achieves a new high price, that also needs to be pulled in to that pricing data. So that is one thing that I'm really excited that AI has the potential to bring to this market. Now, on the other side, the darker side of the trade, if we look at 3D printing, if we look at AI, is AI and 3D printing working in tandem? Is it going to get good to the point where they can pull the experts on a high profile piece of art? or something like a rare coin, or something like a trading card, or even a comic book, or possibly a video game and an action figure, that is something that has to be looked at closely. In my opinion, we are nowhere near that particular perspective yet. Meaning, I don't see AI, I don't see 3D printing becoming a threat as of yet in any of these markets, because a true expert 
is going to be able to tell the difference. I mean, even if we look at the high-end art market, let's be realistic. If a painting's selling for $100 million, there is a lot of incentive to recreate that painting and sell it off as an original. As a matter of fact, Netflix did an excellent documentary on this called Made You Look, which was about a very well-provenance, well-known gallery in New York that was selling a lot of these high-end paintings, and they turned out to be forgeries. And that's something that we always have to worry about. But given the fact as how many experts are trained in looking for certain types of paint that were used, aging of the canvas, aging of the paints in question, there are ways to tell if an item is fake and or real. Now, sometimes the experts get it wrong. Sometimes the experts aren't sure. I know if I was paying 10 or $100 million for a painting and experts told me, well, there's a 60% chance it could be real, I would probably avoid buying that particular item. With AI, I'm looking at this from the perspective that AI could at least present an opinion and be 80 to 90% accurate, even more accurate than the experts. There's people on the negative side that are going to say, well, wait a minute, what if AI could also then use that intelligence, that artificial intelligence, to then create a fake painting that is 80 to 90% accurate? That could be bad for the market. Again, I don't think we're anywhere near that. And I don't think we're going to get anywhere near that in due time. I think that we're looking at a problem that could potentially exist 50 to 100 years into the future. Sean shares his overall advice for listeners. A lot of the people on social media that are wanting all of these expensive cars, jewelry, houses. I'm here to tell you firsthand because I know a lot of these people now from being on YouTube for four years... Some of them, not all of them, are very unhappy, and some of them are also, I hate to say it, fake. It's not real. It's a fugazi, and it makes people feel bad, and this is where I kind of feel responsible. It makes people feel bad about who they are, like they have to change who they are. You don't have to change anything about yourself. You should be living an authentic life, finding your purpose, and if that's not enough for the world, that's the world's problem. As long as you're not hurting anybody and you think you have a valid perspective, I'm here to tell you, I am somebody that thought my experience, my knowledge didn't matter. It was only until later in life I realized when I discovered who I was and what my purpose was, that's when I realized, hey, I could put this out here. This is something that they can use to better their lives. And I believe that everybody has something like that, a talent or knowledge within them that can help change the world for the better. And that's why I do not like a lot of like, I'm just going to pick on one category of the internet here because I know it's been popular. It's been blowing up over the years. But like the red pill space, I am avidly against that type of content because it's coming out of fear and anger. It's not coming out of wanting to do good, wanting to help people in the dating world. So there are certain things that trigger me even when I go online and I know to avoid it. So I'm just telling you the best advice that I can give anybody watching this is to find your own talent, find your own superpower, if you will, and give it back to the world in some manner. You may not get rich giving that back to the world, but you'll at least be able to sleep at night. You know, I often say this in every video that I produce on YouTube, if you go to the video description, you will see where to email me if you want to use my consulting services in the antiques and collectibles trade. And I haven't raised my rates literally since 2015. 
because I try to help as many people as possible. So people come to me and I have a lot of people coming to me. I all charge them the same, whether you're a multimillionaire or you make $30,000 a year. I usually only charge $50 for an initial consultation to work with me that lasts an hour. Now, why am I telling you this? If you don't want to work with me at all, you have no need to work with a consultant in the antiques and collectibles trade. I'm 100% okay with that. You can watch my content or even listen to it while you're at the gym or doing something else completely free of charge. And if you don't like me, if you say, you know what, Sean, I like what you preach, but I can't stand hearing your voice. If that's you, if you're one of those guys out there, I'll tell you what, if you're worried that I'm getting ad revenue off of you watching my video, you can watch one of the interviews or collaborations I did with another YouTuber. And I assure you, I don't get a dime from you watching that video. That's really what it's about, putting something out that you think benefits the world. And we all have talents like that. We just have to find them and cultivate them. It took me many, many years of not realizing that I had this knowledge to be able to reach inside and put it out there and people have responded. Thanks for listening to Creators by Moonlight. Email the show at creatorsbymoonlight at gmail.com and follow the show on social at Creators by Moonlight.